KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The coronavirus pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Projection models, we hear an awful lot about them as we battle COVID-19 and we try to determine uh, how we're doing in this battle against the virus. We wanted to learn more about projection models, what they are, how they are put together. And to do that, we reached out to Dr. Michael Robert. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Mathematics, Physics, and Statistics at the University of the Sciences. He talks to us about what these models are, how they are put together, and what they are telling us about the future in this pandemic. Give a listen. Well, first question, let's kind of start at the ground level. We see a lot of models with regards to to COVID-19, how bad it could get, how much we can flatten the curve. Uh, For people that that aren't familiar, kind of explain projection models and how they're developed. There's actually two sort of major classes of these sorts of projection models that are being used currently. And, and so I, if I were to divide them into these two classes sort of very coarsely, we have the, the statistical models and the, the mathematical models. My work is completely in mathematical modeling. And so I, I can say a little bit more about those than I can in statistical models. But from a sort of broad perspective, a lot of the statistical models themselves so a lot of people have probably heard about the IHME model, the Institute of, of Health Metrics Evaluation model that was used in a lot of early decision-making. So that's the statistical model. And the way those tend to work is they look at the data that's available. So potentially looking at cases early on in the epidemic, they use techniques to measure the rate of growth of uh, the cases. They also take into account thinking about how that growth rate itself is changing. And they use that information to make predictions about how many cases we might see, say, in the next couple of days or the next couple of weeks or the next couple of months. For the mathematical models, there can be an entire spectrum of complexity for those models. And, and at the very base level, those models often treat the population as a bunch of different compartments. So we might take an entire population and divide it up into what we think about as being the the susceptible compartment. Uh, Those are the people who haven't been infected. The infectious compartment, those are the people who are capable of transmitting the virus. Uh, And then the recovered or removed compartment, and those are the people who have recovered from the virus and theoretically can't transmit it anymore. That's sort of the base foundation of a lot of the mathematical models that are being used. We can estimate the rates of movement between these compartments. So we're thinking about people moving from, say, the susceptible compartment to the infectious compartment or from the infectious to the recovered. And we can estimate the rates of those movements based upon things like how long somebody's infected, specifically in thinking about the rate of recovery. We can estimate transmission rates, so movement between the susceptible and the infectious groups based upon the number of contacts people have and and other characteristics about the virus. That measurement in particular is fairly difficult to estimate, but things like the recovery period, that's something that we can get a pretty good idea of the range of values for people. 
And so these models are built on that basic framework. And we can add all sorts of complexities to those. Uh, for instance, something that's been thought about a lot with COVID is there's definitely a period, an infectious period where people are not showing symptoms. So you might, instead of having three compartments, you might have four compartments where you have the susceptible, you have asymptomatic people who are infectious, and then you have symptomatic people who are infectious, and then the recovered population. That's important because the rate of transmission between asymptomatic people and symptomatic people may be quite different because asymptomatic people might be out and moving about, especially in before social distancing, whereas infectious people might be hospitalized or at least they might be staying home more often. And so the sort of symptomatic infectious people, sorry, are less likely to be actually transmitting the virus than the asymptomatic people in, in some scenarios, at least. There are a number of other complexities that some of these models are taking into account. So for instance, some of the models are taking into account movement or they're dividing up larger populations and, and smaller populations in the sense of like, for instance, a place like Philadelphia, we have a major urban center, but there are a lot of suburbs that are highly connected to the city itself. And so they're what we refer to as being metal population style models where you're taking into account a bunch of smaller populations and how they interact, either through public transit, daily commutes, people traveling from the suburbs to the city. And you can even broaden that sort of model of connectivity to thinking about larger scale movement. So for instance, airline models, moving people from city to city. But sort of at the base of all of, of all of these models is that basic idea of dividing the population by infection status. And often the measure that we have to use to compare those models to what's going on in real life is the number of infected people. So the people who are being hospitalized, the people who are reporting symptoms, the people, especially the people who have tested positive. And so we can take the output from those models, both the mathematical and the statistical models, and we can compare that output to the data. And we try to get that output to look as much like the data as, as we possibly can. And then we can use that information to make forecast or projections into the future to, to get an idea of what the number of new cases will look like in the next days, weeks, or, or months, even to get an idea of what time we might reach the peak, to get an idea of what time we might be below a certain number of cases, and, and other things like that. We have a bunch of states that are starting to open up to different extents. Uh, what does the data tell us about if it's the right time to, to start opening up? From a, a modeling perspective and from a, from a data perspective, we hope to see sort of consistent decreases in the number of cases. So if we just talk about the data specifically for a moment, we would hope to see the number of cases decreasing over a period of time. And the WHO and I think the, the U.S. national cutoff for that is, is 14 days or two weeks. Ideally, if we see these decreases happening over the course of two weeks or longer, that tells us that we're sort of on the the other side, so to speak, of the epidemic curve and that we're reducing the cases closer towards zero, although you know the ability to get closer to zero will depend upon sort of how many cases we had at the peak. So 
using Philadelphia and New York as an example, we had far more cases in New York than we have had in Philadelphia. And so the distance from the peak to, to zero is going to be uh, quite a bit different and potentially take quite a bit longer to get there. So what we're looking for in the data is specifically looking for these two-week periods or longer periods where we're seeing consistent decreases in the numbers. From a modeling perspective, we can get an idea of when that might happen. And so when we're thinking about relaxing some of the social distancing measures or opening up things like restaurants or stores, et cetera, that's something that we're not going to be able to do just sort of instantly, like wake up one morning and say, okay, we're going to open everything. So the models can be helpful in giving us an idea of what that timeline looks like. So are we two weeks out from being able to do that? Are we a week out from being able to do that? In such a way that we can give people time to prepare to reopen, to to prepare new measures of of safety and sort of health awareness moving forward. From the perspective of the data as it stands, both in Pennsylvania, New York, the United States as a whole, and, and various other places, there's no great evidence yet that we are definitely heading down. So we've heard the the term flattening the curve over and over again. We have flattened the curve. The curve itself, in terms of thinking about sort of the peak number of cases, has been fairly flat and fairly constant for a couple of weeks now. But even looking at the data, the number of cases are not going down significantly. So we're still sort of at that that period of rather than having a peak, maybe sort of having a mesa. So we're, we're sort of on the mesa uh, at the moment. And hopefully that will continue in such a way that we start moving down towards zero soon. Looking at the data and you mentioned, you know, we have flattened the peak to a point. I think the number one thing everybody wants to know is when is life going back to normal? Is that a question? The the data can answer, are there any models that, that show how long we could be in some sort of social distancing or or partial shutdown, stuff like that? So I think one thing uh, that these models have been uh, especially useful for is getting ideas of different types of scenarios. So a lot of the, the mathematical models have been making these projections about what the outbreak might look like if we have different degrees of social distancing, if we have different control measures such as, you know, having all the schools closed or encouraging people to work from home, social distancing as it stands now, where, where, you know, most of the places that we think about social interaction happening that are not essential are closed. The models can certainly help us get an idea of what the outbreak will continue to look like as we start relaxing those things. And that's gonna give us an idea of both when we can go back to sort of quote unquote normal, but also give us an idea of what that normal is going to look like. I I think that potentially we might not go back to normal anytime soon, but I think that we um, should be able to eventually over the course of the summer, hopefully, go back to a situation and where, you know, a lot of the social distancing measures are more relaxed. The concern with this and something that the models have been showing us is that if we are to 
relax all of the social distancing measures, we might have a period over the summer uh, where we're not seeing a lot of cases, where we're not seeing a lot of deaths. But as time progresses and things try to go back to as they were before all of the control measures were put into place, that we are unfortunately probably going to head into a large outbreak again, where we will have to sort of reenact a bunch of these different social distancing measures and other control strategies to keep that peak from being uh, high, potentially higher than it has been already. And so that's something that we certainly have to keep in mind moving forward and something that I think that the models uh, and the data are helping us understand maybe not down to the number of, of cases we might expect, but at least in terms of sort of qualitatively what things might look like if we just start tomorrow and relax everything, or if we phase out some of the control measures and, and give everything a chance to sort of shift a little bit. So for instance, if we, we relax some of the social distancing measures and we wait two weeks, three weeks and see you know, what sort of impact that had before deciding to relax one of the other control measures. And I think that's something that we can get an idea from um, the data and from the models and helping make those decisions. Is there a model out there that shows what things would look like if society just said enough, we're going to take our chances and didn't impose any restrictions going forward and uh, project how bad the outbreak could get? There is a model that was released early on from a group coming out of the Imperial College uh, in London. And that model took a, a look at a bunch of different control scenarios. Um, but they also looked at what would happen if nothing, if no control measures took place. So if we just sort of treated it as normally, we didn't do anything different. The estimates from that particular model suggested that about 85% of the country could get infected. And it suggested that there might be something on the order of 2 million deaths in the United States. Currently, we're looking at uh, just over a million cases in the U.S. And the death rate is, is still uh, less than 70,000 people. So that's quite far away from 2 million, thankfully. And I think that particular model has been a, a major motivator for a lot of these, a lot of the measures that have been put into place, because that is a model that used what we knew about what was going on in, in China and, and, and Western Europe to sort of make some predictions, make some assumptions about what could potentially happen in the United States. Since then, there's been a number of other models. Most of those haven't really been looking at sort of what happens you know, if we do absolutely nothing, but they have been looking at how things are you know, expected to proceed under current conditions and if we start to relax some of those conditions. Is there a model of the ones you've looked at that you would put above I don't know if above, but one that, that you think has the uh, the best data, the, the way they, they put it together and stuff like that. Uh, is there a, a specific one that, that you have kind of uh, has been your go-to one through all this? I wouldn't say that there's really a specific one. So one thing about 
having uh, a number of different models available is that we can get a really good idea of sort of the range of, of expectations. So um, I like to make a comparison to, for instance, hurricane forecasting models. So a lot of times in the summer, you'll see these models that are trying to project the path of a hurricane and uh, you hear a lot about the cone of uncertainty. Part of where that cone of uncertainty comes from is that the projections for the movement of hurricanes comes from a number of different models. It's, it's what we think about as being sort of ensemble model forecasting. And the, the reason that it's important to take into account a bunch of different models is each one has its own set of assumptions. Each one has its own um, different structure. Each one takes into account different details of the, the infectious disease transmission process. They have different levels of complexity. So earlier on, I talked about having these more sort of spatial models that take into account connectivity between populations. Um, and then there's other models that sort of just consider a basic population where we're not thinking about a lot of interconnectivity. All of these models have their advantages and they also have their disadvantages, of course. But I think that there's, there's probably not just one model that I would, I would recommend. So I, I like that the, the CDC actually has a list of different models now from a number of different groups. Those models are a, a subset of, of all the available models that are out there. Um, and I think paying attention to sort of the projections of all of them is important to give us an idea of, of you know, the range of possible outcomes that we might be encountering. You mentioned earlier, the uh, we talked about the 14-day decline for the, uh, and that no one really has that. So not so much around here, but specifically in the South, we see states that have decided to to just open up. I guess it just, it seems to go against the data that this isn't telling us what we want to tell us, but we're going to do it anyway. Is that just trumping the 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 economic over what the health data is saying? I would say so. I think, you know, understandably, there's a lot of concern about the economy. There's a lot of concern about what all of these the quarantines and social distancing and other measures are going to mean for the, the future. I think people are eager to get back to normal. A lot of places, uh, for instance, I know the governor of Tennessee has mentioned reopening everything where there's no real evidence that they're seeing decreases in, in the number of cases, um, especially not over a 14-day period. You know, I suspect based upon just looking at the data and uh, what the, the models are saying that as things are relaxed sort of prematurely, there's going to be a, a spike in cases come much more quickly than we might see if we were to prolong the reopening of everything. Sort of uh, speaks to an ongoing battle in, in thinking about infectious disease control and, and the role of, of modeling, but just in the role of science and infectious disease control in general is that there's always sort of battles between the science and, and the culture, and in this case, the culture being sort of concern about the economy, which is a very real concern. I personally wish that there was more emphasis being placed on the science in these places, because I think overall, it's, it's probably going to have a negative impact on the populations that are reopening so early. And that 
it's interesting because we talk about these projections. We talked a few minutes ago about the a projection that was made, you know, early on of what would happen if nothing was done. And, you know, and one thing I've heard is people kind of use these projections against science saying, well, this said that a million people would be dead and eight, 85% of the, and it didn't come close to that. So this is all silly in a way does in our society, does this, these projection models almost work against themselves because they're showing what could happen and it's impossible to show it's impossible to almost like prove the negative. If I'm, if I'm making myself clear. Yeah. I mean, I think that is an issue that we run into. So, you know, I, I have to admit that I was, I was even a little bit skeptical in the beginning of the model coming out of the Imperial college of London. Cause it just seemed so, so grand. So, so many cases and so many deaths and, and, and thankfully I, you know, we're not going to know exactly what would happen if, nothing was done. That's something that, that I think is, is difficult to understand, even as a scientist, in the sense that you know, we want to make the best decisions that we can based upon the data that's available. The problem, especially with this outbreak, is that the data that's available is changing on a, on a day-to-day basis, if not um, you know, on an hourly basis in some places. And that's, a, that's been a struggle with this uh, entire outbreak because decisions have been made on a, on a day-to-day basis because that's the information that we have to work with. I think from a completely outside perspective, those changes have happened quite rapidly. So, you know, one day uh, we're just encouraging people to stay home. The next day, everything is, is closed and those changes are happening suddenly, but they're happening as we get more and more information. The reality is, is that we're not going to truly know what would happen and we're not going to really know what is happening until after the fact. So, you know, a lot of the work that, that I personally do is actually looking at these sorts of outbreaks, you know, after they've already happened and trying to figure out what was a driver of these outbreaks. So what caused this outbreak to happen? Were there certain things that that lined up that led to increased transmission or that led to the outbreak itself. That's something that you can't really do until it's over pretty much. Uh, we can certainly hypothesize why things are happening in the ways they're happening. And I think that we can hypothesize what would have happened and what would happen under different control strategies or, or different you know, social distancing measures under different treatment regimes and things like that. But the only thing that we're really going to know in the end is exactly sort of what is happening and what has happened once it's all over with. And so, I, you know, to, to go back to the original question, is I, I do think that, that having those models that make the projections about, you know, what would happen if we did nothing can be a little bit dangerous if they're misinterpreted. You know, and, and in some ways, there's no grand way to validate those sorts of models because, you know, as I said, we're not going to know what happens if no control measures took place. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic here in the Philadelphia area, or if you want to know how what you see or hear on the news is going to change your own life or your own routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. 
Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My name is Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.